Welcome to To Every Generation, the broadcast ministry of Calvary Chapel Crossfields, located in Jamesburg, New Jersey, where we teach through the entire Bible, verse by verse, and make application to every generation so we can grow in our relationship with God. This morning we're going to be in Matthew 13, starting in verse 44. And in Matthew 13, what we covered so far were the longer parables, um, very powerful. We looked at the parable of the soils. We looked at the parable of the wheat and the tares. We looked at the, the parable of the mustard seed and the parable of the leaven. And we saw a few things that were very sobering. We saw that, you know, if you're really trying to practice your faith, it's sometimes very difficult to do it in a world that's hostile to Christianity. As a matter of fact, I went on the, you know, just a search engine, secular sources, and pretty much all the secular sources say that Christianity in the world is the most persecuted, most persecuted people, and it's been that way for quite some time. So I was impressed that, again, non-Christian sources were saying this. Um, we also know that even among Christendom itself, there can be a lack of genuineness inside of it. And this is important. This is why we preach the entire Bible. We don't pick out our favorite parts. We don't, you know, meander through um, the difficult parts like landmines. And when you're in a ministry that does that, what happens is when the trials come and reality sets in, you don't know what to do with yourself. You're not prepared. So we give you the entire package, the, the whole counsel of God. And today, the sermon title is The Relational God. There's four very short parables, be the parable of the hidden treasure, the parable of the pearl of great price, the parable of the dragnet, and the parable of the householder. And I'm glad we have a great turnout this morning because I think it's more of an upbeat message. Now, me personally, and it actually just happened this week, somebody asked me, Pastor Joe, I have good news and bad news. I'll often always say, give me the bad news first <laughs> because I want to end on a high note. So we're going to end on a high note. And when Jesus says the kingdom of heaven is like, he's speaking about a lot of things. He's speaking about all of God's creation. He's speaking about his plan to come back and to restore all things, new, create a new heaven and new earth. He's speaking about Christianity. He's speaking about what we're to be doing as people of faith until he comes and returns. So when he says the kingdom of heaven is like, he, he goes through a wide variety of subjects in this, and, and we can see this. So let's jump in in verse 44. He says, and this is a small one, Again, the kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and hid. And for joy over it, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. So this is the parable of the hidden treasure. And guess what the treasure is? It's you. It's you. It's me. Pretty neat. John 3.16 and I say certain words for emphasis, for God so loved the world, so much so, that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever, whichever whosoever is in the furthest reaches of the world, whosoever would believe in him would not perish, but have eternal life. That's a great message. Let me make you feel better. <laughs> you know, you might have come in here this morning with a heavy heart, and maybe you were considering not even coming to church because of what you're going through. 
But let me talk to you about what, what message God has for you this morning. As I go through the symbolism, I'm just going to break this up in five quick parts. The first one is Jesus is speaking of himself as the man in these parables. Jesus said, a sower went out to sow. A man went out and found treasure. He is the agent of change. So he's the main focus. He's God the Son. So Jesus is the man in this parable. And this man seems to be obsessed with this treasure. So much so that he finds it. He's blown away by it. He rehides it so nobody else will take it. Then he goes and he redeems the property so that he can get that treasure for himself. And the Lord Jesus Christ is so obsessed with wanting to spend all eternity with you. He doesn't want to lose anyone. 2 Peter 3.9 says that the Lord desires that none should perish, but that all would come to repentance. Now there are some strange doctrines in Christendom, and I've, I've, we've talked about this. This is the, you know, the birds and the mustard plant, if you were here, the wheat and the tares, and they're repulsive to the average person. So in hyper-Calvin, hyper-Calvinism, there's a doctrine called double predestination, and if you're familiar with it, and it's not true, I don't know where they come up with this stuff, but basically God uh, creates people, puts a soul in them only to damn them to hell for eternity. Gives them no chance of opportunity for salvation. If they are being drawn towards God, he pushes them away. That's not the God that I read about in the scripture. You know, one of my favorite atheists who went and passed away was Christopher Hitchens. And he was so snarky. I think I just liked his mannerisms. But here's a guy who... To, to his last day, had a bunch of friends that were pastors. I believe he got saved before he passed. But he grew up in a hyper-Calvinist home, and I think this turned him off. And I'm going to talk to you about those that are agnostic or those that have been repelled by the things of God and, and kind of almost the, the behaviorism or the psychology behind it. But God desires that none should perish, but that all would come to repentance. Remember, he did give us free will. It's a choice that we make. The second out of five in this parable, we are a hidden treasure. And he sells everything he has to redeem us. Now the word hidden is very interesting because I love this. You know what I love? I love that, that I was taught as a new Christian to study the entire Bible. So that when I read things, I can pull things out from the Old Testament and New Testament. It reminds me of Genesis when Adam and Eve sinned. And... They hear God walking in the cool of the garden. You can almost imagine Adam and Eve, his, his new creations, his new children, and God every day in the morning comes to fellowship with his people. Don't you just like long for that? So one day, it says the Lord God is walking through the cool of the garden, and he says, God says, Adam, where are you? Listen, not that Adam was good at hide and seek and God couldn't figure it out. He really was asking him where his heart was. And he said... Adam said, well, I heard you coming, and and I was naked, and I was afraid, and I hid myself. And God said to him, who told you that? And everything changed from from then. See, when mankind sinned and rebelled against God, they hid themselves from God. And i got to tell you that when I talk to people, I love just talking to strangers about God. They could be agnostics, they could be atheists. And after I spend some time in my mind, I diagnose the situation. And I say to myself, they do believe. This person's saying they don't believe, but the way we're having this discussion, I know that they believe. They're just not ready to submit from, to God. They're hiding from Him. 
Pretty interesting. I love the words here, and I'm probably taking a lot of embellishments here. But um, when the Lord tells us things, I kind of hang on his every word. But you know what's really cool? The treasure is in the field. It's in the field. What is the field? The world, the creation. And remember, the treasure, you, are hidden in the field. So what does this tell us? Out of all of God's creation, out of everything he created, the furthest reaches of the expanding universe, the Bible talks about the expanding universe, the most important thing to him is you, his people. I love preaching a message like this. I'm not shy to preach the fire and brimstone when it comes up, but this really, I'm like, I just couldn't wait to come here and tell you about how much God loves you. Um, it just never gets old to me. Also, we're a treasure that the Lord found redeeming qualities in. Actually, the Bible tells us that in the Old Testament, that, you know, before the New Testament came, Israel was God's treasure. We see this in Deuteronomy 7 6, Deuteronomy 14 2, Psalm 135 4. Israel is God's treasure. But God looks at us and he finds these qualities that he wants to redeem. He wants to redeem. And it, the Lord, it took a lot for God to win us back because it cost him the life of his son on the cross, crucifixion, bearing the sins of the world, something he certainly did not deserve, certainly did not deserve to bear my sins, past, present, and future. But that's how much he loved me. And that's how much he loves you. But I just, I just got hung up on two words. Trash and treasure. When God looks at humanity, he sees treasure. You know what's really sad? People look at each other and see trash. And you hear these terms, blank trash or trashy blank or whatever the case may be. Well, I guess the expression one man's trash is another man's treasure. <laughs> so, you know, God, listen, I don't care what you've been told. I don't care how you've been brainwashed. I don't care what people made you feel. And I don't say that to be insensitive, but to me personally, I'm going to think of myself the way God thinks of me and not the way people think of me. And I suggest you do the same thing. It'd be better for you. A little advice there. Three out of five. The man sells all he has to buy this treasure in the field of the world. He gave up everything to redeem us from the slave market of sin. I live two worlds. I've said this, you know, many times around 24, 25. It came to faith. And even though I was in a religion and wore a crucifix, I was an absolute heathen up until that time, until I was born again of the Spirit. So I can look at the old life and I can look at the new life and see major differences. But I didn't realize it, even though I, I, you know, I bought my first house when I was in my 20s, I flipped it, sold it, made some money, bought another house, got the job that I wanted, dating the girl that I wanted, drove the car that I wanted. I was just a go-getter. But I was a slave. I had chains on, but I couldn't see those chains. I was in the slave market of sin, and Jesus came to redeem me from that. You know, i just give you an example. Sometimes it's hard for us to understand this, but today probably the most abhorrent thing in the world that still exists in many countries is slavery and sex slavery. And there's organizations that go out there and go to these slave, sex slave markets, and they buy girls, young girls, out of these markets to do what with them? Set them free. Even after the world and people have used them, they find these girls, they buy them and take them home and just give them to their parents, not asking anything in return. That's amazing. That's actually a parallel to Jesus Christ. Jesus bought us with his precious blood to do what? To make us slaves? No. 
To use us? No. To set us free. That's powerful. He gave up a lot. He left heaven. Something he didn't have to do. He became a man. Something he didn't have to do. He was still fully God and fully man, but his deity was, some type, was, was a type of concealed. As he had to go through the world and through the power of the Holy Spirit, through his words, it wasn't about his appearance, the Bible tells us. So his deity was somewhat concealed. He became vulnerable to pain and to suffering to die for the sins of you and, and me. Four out of five. He has joy over this treasure, even though it came at such a sacrifice. Hebrews 12.2 says, For the joy that was set before him, Jesus endured the cross. Now, when you study, as I have, I remember I did a, a Resurrection Sunday service, and some people were like, wow, that's TMI, Pastor Joe. I went into the, the, the crucifixion and the nerves that were severed through the wrists and through the, the feet and all the, the whippings and the floggings that Jesus went through. At any time, he could have said, you know what? You're French toast. You know what I'm saying? But he didn't do that. He kept, that's amazing. The crucifixion victims, for the most part, they couldn't overpower the Roman soldiers, but Jesus could have just wiped them out. But he kept going through it, the hours of the ordeal of the pain and then being crucified and to bear the sin of the world. And why did he do that? For the joy that was set before him. Who's the joy? You and me. Five out of five. The Lord had to redeem us from the field. Remember, you couldn't do it from heaven. There was a legal issue. Jesus couldn't just sit in heaven and go, it's done you're all going to heaven. Remember, through the line of Adam, through the line of mankind, sin entered the world. So he had to enter that line to reverse it. You know, God can't go against himself. God can't lie. God can't go against his established rules and his law. So he sent his son to fix the issue. Now, what's interesting is some see, when you look at hidden, and we can, there's a lot of analogies here, not only people in general, and I talked about Genesis, but also I, I look at Jewish people. Now, we have a lot of Jewish believers in this church, but I remember uh, I, 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 I've been blessed to have some awesome surgeons over the years, and this guy was an Orthodox Jewish man, and I just was wondering why I was suffering. I had to keep going back, and... He did great work, by the way. I had sleep apnea. Um, and I just sat with him many times in his office and spent a little bit more time with me. And I would t tell him about the Lord. I gave him some books to read. I didn't ask him to do this, but he actually told me that he went online and he was listening to my messages. I was shocked. I was shocked. I think that, I think he knows the Lord. You know, and here's the thing. He's got a community. He's got a professional establishment. Some of these people have so much to lose that they're, they're kind of undercover for a while until they come out. So hidden. A lot of things are hidden. I see that in Islam too, in a lot of these countries, that it's, it's hidden, especially young girls, thrown out of their house, penniless. Um, you, you see the stories if you're following overseas news. Hidden. Interesting. So the crucifixion. Jesus died for our sins. Psalm 49, 7 through 8. This is amazing. Prior to Jesus, it tells us that no one could die for the sins of another. Again, prior to Jesus. So if we try to do that for each other, it just would be ineffective. It was God the Son who had to do it. It wouldn't be efficacious. Who would do this? 
Maybe some would do it for a loved one. Who would do it for, for perfect strangers that were nasty and hateful and rebellious? God the Son did it. Now, just to give you a different interpretation, for those of you that have been maybe studying the Bible for a while, Pastor Joe, I heard that a translation was that Jesus was actually the treasure. There's two problems, major flaws with that. Jesus isn't hidden. He's one of the most well-known people that ever lived and had the greatest impact on humanity. As a matter of fact, Gandhi spoke often, Gandhi spoke often about Jesus. I have some of his quotes, and these things are not fabricated. These are real. The second thing is, we don't have to buy Jesus. That's offensive to God. Salvation is free. So I find two fatal flaws with that interpretation. I don't tell people what to believe, but I do my investigation, and I present the facts as I see them and using symbolism based on Scripture. Verse 45, again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant seeking beautiful pearls, who, when he had found one pearl of great price, went and sold all that he had and bought it. So this is the parable of the pearl of great price. Now this is very similar. Similar actions, similar mannerisms of the man. The man's now a merchant, okay? But it has a Gentile slant to it, and how do I know this? Because if you look at Leviticus 11 in the Old Testament, the oyster, which is what a pearl comes from, God speaks in Levit- Leviticus 7, 11, excuse me, I'm thinking of food, 7, 11. Uh, <laughs> in Leviticus 11, he's going through the sea creatures and what's edible and what's not edible in the Old Testament. And he speaks of you know, the finned and the scaled creatures and they're good for food, but... The oyster was unclean, and the pearls come from the oysters. So Jews would have really no dealings with oysters and pearls. They would deal in gold and other different things, but they would stay away from observant Jews from the things that were unclean. Now over time, many of the Jews at that time, not all of them considered the Gentiles unclean. So this is actually quite clever on the Lord's part. He starts to prepare his largely Jewish church for accepting the Gentiles into the fold. Now, as we read the Bible, again, knowledge is power, Acts 10, 11, and 15, we see some turmoil with the largely Jewish church starting to accept the Gentiles in without making them convert to Judaism first. Okay? Anybody can just come to Christ. You don't have to jump through hoops. You can see this with Peter and Cornelius. Okay? And, and there's, there was a, a point in time in the church where there was a demographic or a paradigm shift. And I believe it was probably around the 4th century under the Roman Emperor Constantine with the, the Edict of Toleration, the Edict of Milan, where he said that the Romans have to stop persecuting the Christians. So now a lot of Gentiles, maybe Romans and Greeks, were say, well, it's safe to be interested in this because I'm not going to lose my life for it. So you had this interesting, and, and to us it's foreign. What do you mean the church was mostly Jewish? Jewish believers, well, we're told in America that Jews don't believe in Jesus. It's not true. It's more spin out there. You know what I'm saying? The Gentiles started crowding into the church. They started asking. They started seeking. It was amazing. It was amazing. So we can look at this as this, the Lord signaling his followers, this is coming. You know, people just don't like change. 
And today, people are the same way. I mean, we get stuck in our routines, even through worship, even through our prayer life, even through a lot of things, and we just kind of, kind of do this routine, and every once in a while, the Lord says, you know what, switch it up a little bit. It's not genuine. And I'm doing a new work, a new work of the Holy Spirit, and you guys got to follow me. Well, if he's our God, then we should be following him. So I just love this. Um, alternate translation, again, is that the pearl of great price is Jesus, and people have to find him. Again, um, we see all throughout the scripture, and I know you wouldn't know it by some ministries today, but it's offensive to God to tie money or valuables or payback or earning to salvation. It's just wrong. You know, church, some churches do it, or ministries, but it's, it's wrong. Verse 47, we continue, the parable of the dragnet. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a, a dragnet that was cast into the sea and gathered some of every kind. And when it was full, they drew, to it, they drew it ashore. They sat down and gathered the good into vessels, but the bad they threw away. So it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come forth, separate the wicked from among the just, and cast them into the furnace of fire. There will be wailing and gnashing of teeth. Dragnet is a large fishing net. Today, um, you know, you watch some of those shows. They're pretty fantastic about going out into like the icy waters and trying to catch fish and things like that. But it was a very, you know, back then they had very little tools, but nets were something that had been around for a very long time. So they'd throw these dragnets in and they would catch sea creatures. And then when the time was, was ready, and it was full, they would drag it to shore and throw away the bad and keep the good. Now, we have to look at biblical uh, symbolism here. The sea, okay, all throughout Old Testament, New Testament, is a picture of humanity. Revelation 13 says that the Antichrist, the beast, this hideous creature, rises out from the sea. And you kind of get this vision of a sea monster. But in biblical symbolism, the beast, the, the future Antichrist, will come from humanity. He's not going to be an alien. He's not going to be whatever. Um, he's going to come from, from people. He's going to come from the body of people, probably the global elites. The dragnet in drawing to shore is a picture of judgment at the end of a human era, which is coming at some point. And basically, this is coming. The angels do the Lord's bidding. Everybody will stand before the Lord. You either know the Lord, you cover under his blood, or you don't, and you perish. All right? But these are the things that are going to take place. All the masks of pretentiousness, all the churches in the world, you know, we can put on all the shows that we want, but those masks maybe work for other people, but they don't work for God. And I want to make a special appeal, whether you're listening live or on the CD or on the Internet. The Lord knows if you have a relationship with him or not. Do you or do you not? If you don't, don't be ashamed, but come to him. Because it isn't about, well, I went to church with my parents, so I'm going to go to heaven. Or I was with this, oh, the Calvary Chapel, oh, that's the great name, and you know, I'm going to be fine. We don't carry cards, like a gym membership card, and with a little barcode, see, Peter, look, I can get in. No, it doesn't work like that. So I do want to make a special appeal. Do you know Jesus? Or do you not? There's a website that somebody turned me on to. It's, I think it's notafan.org or something. It's something like that. And basically these people are saying we're not a fan of Jesus. And you might think, well, that's insulting. No, no, no. They're saying there's testimonies of people, these like five-minute videos of a person who maybe was a church person or grew up in a Christian home or whatever. And at some point in time, 
they were convicted to not be a fan, but to become a follower. I'm not a fan. I'm a follower. There's a big difference. I'm not an admirer. Oh, Jesus. You know, a lot of the world looks at Jesus and they admire the things he did for different reasons, humanitarian reasons, different reasons, but they're not followers. So I just want to encourage you, you can make that, you know, you can make that profession of faith today. We'll give you that opportunity. Verse 51, the last uh, parable Jesus said to them, have you understood all these things? They said to him, yes, Lord. Hmm. I'll get to that. Then he said to them, therefore, every scribe instructed concerning the kingdom of heaven is like a householder who brings out of his treasure things new and old. Now it came to pass when Jesus had finished these parables that he departed from there. Parable of the householder, the last one in Matthew chapter 13. I find verse 51 humorous. The Lord turns to the disciples. You guys understand this? You getting all this? Oh, yeah, Lord. Yeah, we're, we're good. Spot on. I don't know. I might have said the same thing. Maybe, they, you know, but... And sometimes we do that. You know, we don't want to look silly. We're in front of our peers. Oh, yeah, you're... Ask questions. You know, this is so important. So important for us to know. Now, he leaves them with one more parable applicable to his followers, those in ecclesiastical authority, those that he's going to leave to this idea of the church. You know, they're going to be the vanguards of the church. They're going to pass on the word. They're going to continue to disciple. You know, Jesus, for 2,000 years, the church has survived, the true church. Jesus said, the gates of hell will not prevail against my church. So let's look at this. Who are the scribes? Well, again, you can go to, and I love doing this, I go to the secular sources and I find a lot of secular sources reference the Bible. It's amazing. I mean, clearly secular sources from an objective point of view. So we look at the scribes, and you can look them up. They were the guardians of the law, of Mosaic law. They, they copied the law. They taught the law. They knew the law so well, they applied it. And they also applied it to settle legal disputes. He stole my ox. He's farming on my land. You know what I'm saying? Um, my animal got hurt and fell in his pit. What do we do? And they knew it. They could ch cite chapter and verse and settle the dispute. So they had familiarity. They had teaching and applying, which is what we're supposed to do. But over time, unfortunately, with the scribes, and you don't really hear the scribes anymore. They kind of, you don't really hear the Pharisees. You don't hear the Sadducees. They just kind of petered out because they didn't, they didn't follow the Holy Spirit. They, they, they were old wineskins. They didn't accept the new wine. They became corrupted. They became comfortable. They became political. They were in bed with the politicians. You know who suffered? The people. Very sad. So it's, that's not foreign to our, uh, to our culture, is it? I don't think so. One of the major things that they miss in this new work that God was doing was the Messiah. All the Old Testament prophecies pointed to Jesus. Once he came and he fulfilled it, including the time period, they just they brushed it off. They wanted to stay stuck in the old. Now, what is a householder? A householder is someone who's put in charge of his master's affairs. So you have, the, in, in those days, you had servants, right? And then you had the person who owned everything. And in between was like a foreman. He was like a manager. He was a householder. And he wanted to please his, his boss. And what he would do is he would bring out the old and the new and display them and and guard them and 
be well-rounded and be balanced. So where the scribes failed in guarding and displaying and defending the new, being stuck in the old, you know what, today, and I've talked about this, I always throw theology in, in my messages, today there are some that are failing in displaying the old, uh, in replacement theology. Well, we do away with you. You know, I, I love to pull. I'll pull from Genesis. I'll pull from Leviticus. A pastor is not well-balanced, and a ministry is not well-balanced if they discard the old. How do we understand why Jesus was even here if we don't understand the events that led up to him getting here? You see what I'm saying? So today in replacement theology, they discard the Old Testament, they discard Israel in, pro- in prophecy, and then they have trouble exegeting a book like Revelation because they don't have that foundation. The Lord was telling his disciples, you guys got to be balanced. You got to listen to God's word. You got to be flexible. And that strikes at the heart of our routines. You know, Lord, it took me 10 years and I'm, I'm in a groove. And, and when we do, we have these, whether we say it with our lips or we do it with our actions, I just want to stay this way. I want you to change. I want you to grow. Believe me, we've, we've had these discussions. You know what I'm saying? And it's not, it's not enjoyable. Oh, this is the next stage. I really was getting used to the old stage. But this is what you have. What are we doing with the things that God has blessed us with? Uh, a brother in the Lord sent me a video of a pastor, Jim Cimbala, and he Now, he's telling the story. I'm not, this is, these are his words. And I'm looking at the video, and he's a pastor of a large church. And he talks about he's, he's at the church, and a man comes in off the street very scruffy, um, smelled like he hadn't showered or whatever. And he co- goes up to the pastor, and what the first thing he does is he takes out his wallet to give him some money. And the man, the scruffy man, said, Pastor, I don't want your money. I want this Jesus who you preach about. I need him. And sometimes we do that. We try to give out a quick fix because that's what we're brainwashed to do in our culture. But those things perish. They don't last long. And it's good to help people. I enjoy helping people. But what about the Lord? What about being a householder and giving the old and the new and preparing that person to receive eternity? You know, people don't get fixed quickly. 14 years of being a pastor, I can come to that conclusion. They don't get fixed quickly. And if, if I go off on a tangent and try to fix it Joe's way and I'm, I'm leaving the word behind, I'm not going to have much success. It might be short-lived. That's why I even tell people, and, you know, well, you, can you counsel me? Can you do this? Can you? Yeah, I want to see your attendance better at church. It's not because I'm trying to be a jerk. You know what I'm saying? It's not because I want your money. It's because if you're not, and Pastor Paul and Pastor Vinny and the elders will tell you the same thing, if you're not being discipled under the word, things old and new, what we tell you is going to be short-lived. I've had people ask me, will you, a young, young couple, Will you counsel us and not speak about Jesus or God? I said, I can't do it. I can't do it. And I wasn't trying to be mean. And it broke my heart. And I gave the gospel. But it's like, you've got to leave God's word out. You've got to leave his word. I can't do it. You take God's word away from me, and I'm just another babbling fool you know, with a microphone. <laughs> it's just the way it is. So this is awesome. I love this. And you know what I love this, about teaching this too is because I want to challenge, you know, I don't want to dumb down the congregation, and I've seen that happen. It's the same old mantra, and it's just repetitive, and it's just, you could do it in your sleep. This is an encouragement for us to also step up to the plate, because God wants to, could you imagine if every church-going believer did something that the Lord asked them to do? 
talk to one person a week? Could you imagine how the world would change? We look and we do this as Christians. We complain. We look on TV, we complain. A country, it's divided, people angry. Blah, 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 blah. But what are we doing to personally help people to be filled? Once you start filling them with Jesus Christ and the Word, they start to change. Wouldn't that be something to watch? I'd love to see that. I'd love to see a great revival before Jesus returns. And again, I've talked to you before. It's this over-focus on material goods. I know people who go on missions trips, and they're incredulous. They can't believe it. They come, and they can't believe that people who are poor are happy and have joy, and sometimes so much more joy than Westerners. It doesn't compute because here, if you want to be happy, you win the Powerball. And then all your problems are solved. Well, first you better get security for your family because now everybody's going to know that you're wealthy. I mean, this is the way I think, you know what I'm saying? That's the first step, bodyguard, you know what I'm saying? But how many people's lives have been ruined by winning big money or inheriting big money and not knowing to do with it? You have all these friends who all of a sudden come out of the woodwork. Well, these friends I have. Pray about that one. Jesus is what we need. So I titled today's message, The Relational God, because when we go through the parables, we see a special relationship between God and His children. It's you. It's me. We see His love for us, how He treasures us. We see His desire to continue an honest-to-goodness relationship with us, not cheap religion. Not coming to a church and doing a quick rite or ritual and think we did something and God's happy and we go home and we don't talk to Him until next Sunday. That's not a relationship with God. We see Him ask us to stay on the right path, to be obedient to His voice for our own good. Not because He's trying to control us. He already gave us free will. We could say no. I could have said no. Actually, as a matter of fact, before I became a Christian, I said no about ten times because I was too busy in my partying lifestyle. Too busy being a young person who thought I knew everything. And after so many times, I'm like, wow. I said to myself, I'm running from God. Obviously, he's, He loves me. Obviously, He wants me to come to Him. What am I doing? my life. Let me just try this one more thing. Let me just try this one more thing. It's for our own good. He's already God. He doesn't need anything. But we need Him. We see a loving and relational God who wants to keep us close. And He wants to walk with us all the days of our lives, including into all eternity. Let's pray. You've been listening to To Every Generation from Calvary Chapel Crossfield. We're located at 15 Half Acre Road in Jamesburg, New Jersey. We meet for Bible study Wednesdays at 7.30 p.m. and Sunday service begins at 10.30 a.m. On Sundays we have children's church for all ages in addition to infant and nursery care. You can find out more about the ministry here at Calvary Chapel Crossfields by going to cccrossfields.org. Thanks for listening, and may God bless you.